Thank you, Bob, for that very kind introduction. Thank you all for coming. I always like to have lunch talks because I know it increases the uh, attendance substantially. Um, but we're locking the doors now, so can't leave. Uh, I always, I'm, I'm very glad to, to be here at the Mershon Center. Uh, as Bob pointed out, I'm part of a cohort uh, of international historians. Many of them have already been here for various stints as fellows and, uh, and other capacities. Uh, this is my first time here. I've always known that uh, uh, Mershon, as I was telling Bob yesterday, is a, is a mecca for anyone interested in international history and international affairs. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to be able to make my pilgrimage. Um, there was the paper, and then you took it. Okay. <laughs> Force of habit. All right. Where did it go? Um, as, as Bob said, the, the talk that I'm going to give today is essentially based, uh, uh, is, is based on the book, The Wilsonian Moment. Uh, in many ways, it's a summary of, uh, of the arguments and just a sampling of the evidence that I uh, bring in the book. Uh, and uh, I look forward to your questions, and I hope it will get you interested in the project more broadly. Uh, I'm going to start. I, I have some slides, but I actually thought it would be better to show the slides uh, after all the slides after the talk because uh, we can get pretty involved in the slides and then uh, just run over time and no time for questions. So I'm going to I'm going to give the uh, the talk first and then uh, then show the slides. Uh, I'm going to begin the story with a, an anecdote, which is a famous one. I'm sure all of you know it. Uh, it happened in June of 1919. Uh, a young man uh, in Paris, a man from French Indochina, uh, uh, prepared and circulated a petition uh, to the world leaders who were then gathering for the Paris Peace Conference. Uh, the petition enumerated the claims of the people of Annam, uh, and this young man who, as I'm sure you, you know, uh, would later become known to history as Ho Chi Minh, uh, even wanted to meet with President Wilson, who was a major inspiration for the petition, uh, to put forth his case in person. One story goes that he even rented a morning suit in anticipation of such a meeting. The meeting, of course, never took place. The suit, presumably, was returned unused. Uh, and uh, a year later, Ho uh, was on the road to communism as an alternative path to national liberation for his people. Now, this is a well-known story, uh, but it's, it, it's worth stressing that uh, Ho's experience was very far from unique. In Paris of 1919, you have a veritable avalanche of representatives invited, uh, many uninvited, from what was called then small nations. China was thought of as a small nation, um, who came to Paris to uh, to make use of the opportunity that they saw opening up with Wilson's arrival uh, as an advocate and a champion uh, of these new ideas about the right of all nations to self-determination, the equality of small nations, uh, and the need to reconstruct international order along these, uh, in the wake of the war, along these principles. I argue that this point in time uh, uh, constituted a crucial shift both in uh, anti-colonial nationalist movements, 
uh, in the development of anarcho-nationalist movements and also in the development of international society, the shift that we see in the 20th century from an imperial international society, international society based on empires, national empires, if you will, but empires, uh, to a post-colonial order uh, based on uh, the legitimacy, the sole legitimacy of self-determining nation states. Now, uh, what I did in this project is, is uh, basically something that seems obvious in retrospect, but surprisingly had not been done before, which is to look at the story of Paris 1919, um, not from the perspective of the European or the uh, American protagonists, but from the perspective of, if you will, the periphery of international society, that is the colonial uh, world. And uh, I chose in particular uh, four groups, the uh, Chinese, Indians, Egyptians and Koreans, uh, and followed their story throughout this what I what I call the Wilsonian moment. Now, this moment is already uh, f uh, well established in the national historiographies of each of, of each of these uh, now nations. Uh, in China, of course, it's the May Fourth Movement. Uh, in India, 1919 is the, the moment of the launching of uh, Gandhi's Satyagraha. Indeed, it's uh, the moment of Gandhi's coming to prominence as a national leader of, of, the, uh, of the movement for self-government. Uh, in Korea, it's the Mar March 1st uh, movement. And in Egypt, it's called the 1919 Revolution. So all, in, all these, uh, in all these national historiographies, you already have 1919 marked as a turning point. <laughs> Uh, but always in the context of the national trajectory and, the, and, and framed as a national story uh, and explained by developments within the national unit rather than as essentially an international event. What, one of the arguments I make in the book is, is that this is not four distinct, these are not four distinct events that happen to occur at the same time. This is one event uh, that is uh, of international scope. Now, among other things, uh, international, internationalizing the histories of nationalism, if you will, um, offers, in my view, a, a way to wiggle out of the Procrustean bed of the nation in writing the history of its own emergence, right? If you're already assuming that the nation is the framework of history, uh, you can't really uh, interrogate it in, 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 a, in a substantial way. Um, uh, in other words, the, practices, the practice of questioning narratives of the nation while remaining within the spatial and, and conceptual boundaries of that same nation, which uh, uh, some historians have been, have been doing, ends up reinforcing that uh, which, which it seeks to challenge. Uh, and I think opening up the international lens uh, helps us get, get around that problem, the problem of assuming the nation as we come to study its emergence. Now, uh, viewing the, uh, these anti-colonial uprisings in 1919 within the context of international history uh, and not simply within the context of national or imperial histories uh, is also important because that was how their leaders viewed them at the time. Leaders and participants viewed them at the time. They viewed themselves as participating in, international, in an international movement. Um, it, it, this interpretive framework doesn't replace the need to study each of these events uh, in the national context and domestic context, if you will, obviously, uh, but it, it does suggest that in order to fully understand them, we need to keep, to keep them uh, uh, in the international context because the evolution of anti-colonial nationalist programs uh, was inseparable from the world order that colonial peoples and colonial leaders uh, perceived as emerging around them uh, during the Wilsonian moment.
uh, and in fact, one of the central uh, uh, characteristics of the Wilsonian moment was the simultaneity across space, across the, really a global space. Uh, uh, it was experienced all over the world in different ways, but at the same time, in a fashion, I, I argue that it was really unprecedented uh, in modern international history. Partly, of course, it's, it's a question of technological developments uh, that enabled people all over the world to uh, be connected to news about the war, about the peace, about the declar various declarations of, of all sorts of leaders uh, uh, in, almost instantaneously. Uh, and you see this if you look at... Uh, Chinese newspapers, Indian newspapers, Egyptian newspapers, and so forth, uh, you see across the board a, a, a shared, you know, a, a similar reporting and, and, and a shared discourse and a shared notion, no, notions of what the war is about and what Wilson's declarations are about, partly because uh, much of the news of foreign affairs is coming from the same source, uh, which is international news agencies, primarily Reuters. Uh, you look at Reuters dispatches uh, in, 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 in you read your reader in Cairo, you're reading Reuters dispatches in Arabic, you're reader in, in Beijing, you're reading the same dispatch translated into Chinese. In India, you're reading in, in English or translated into a local language. But uh, there's a, there a cer certain uniformity uh, in the news market at the time, especially foreign news, that uh, was not there before, and I think not, not really since. I mean, it doesn't exist in the same way that, that today. Uh, that was an interesting finding for me. Now, uh, the story of, of, the, uh, of these four groups, of course, far from uh, exhausts the global history of the Wilsonian moment, and, and one clearly, obviously suspects that uh, the same moment was ex experienced in quite uh, different ways among, say, Mexicans or Filipinos. Uh, and uh, part of the, one of the challenges of doing international history is deciding what you're not going to write about. Uh, because once you uh, go beyond the national frameworks, and any, anybody here who's tried to do it will know uh, people expect you to cover everything. Well, okay, so you're doing China, India, Egypt, and, and Korea, but what about Cuba? What about Argentina? What about Japan? What about everything? Um, and, and, of course, doing everything is, 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 is tantamount to doing nothing, and you have to <laughs> delimit yourself in, in some ways and yet still um, uh, remain committed. Uh, we can talk about these mythological issues, if you like, uh, as well, and remain committed to this, the international lens, international uh, international framework. One of the things, among other things, that this does, the, the looking at the Wilsonian moment globally does for us is um, it allows us to get beyond the quite common assumption that anti-colonial nationalism became important internationally as an international phenomenon uh, right, only after 1945. And if you look at uh, international accounts, they usually begin at 1945 after Second World War. And, and uh, I argue that 1919, in fact, is a, is a much... Uh, is, is uh, I don't know if I would say more important, but uh, but certainly as important a a, a, a launching point of this tr as the transformation of world order that I was uh, just describing uh, as these uh, anti-colonial nationalist movements, uh, despite the fact that Wilson that you know, certainly European powers and Wilson himself disavowed many of the principles that he, had, he himself had championed, or was perceived to champion at least, uh, these principles were embraced and adapted by the colonial, by anti-colonial movements uh, and shaped their goals and identities even as they shaped, uh, uh, they recast these ideas, uh, these principles in their image. So what did Wilson actually say? Let's, let's say a few words about that before we move over uh, uh, to the colonial perspective. Uh, contrary to 
popular belief, and in fact, not only popular belief today, but popular belief in 1919, uh, the 14 points never uh, even mention the term self-determination. It does not appear anywhere in the text of the 14 points, despite the fact that, as I was saying, by the end of 1918, people are already saying the 14 points are advocating self-determination, which is an interesting conflation. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll try to say a bit about what I think brought it about, but... Uh, it's certainly worth more discussion. Uh, he did say something about colonial claims, which was unusual and was, in fact, not really called for in terms of uh, if you want to analyze his war aims in, in a rational sense. Uh, he didn't really have to say anything about colonial aims. What, what he said was uh, 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 that uh, well, no people must be forced under a sovereignty under which it does not wish to live. Well, that was before the 14 points. And the 14 points itself, he said, uh, point five, the adjustment of all colonial claims will have to take into account the interests of the population's concern. So he's introducing the population's concern here, um, despite the fact that, that uh, uh, this is going to, he knows this is going to uh, challenge, this is not going to make the British and French happy, and there, there is no, uh, if you will, realist interest for him uh, uh, in terms of uh, the fighting of the war itself to do this. Uh, this isn't an arguable proposition. We can argue it if you like. Um, he doesn't use the term self-determination explicitly. Uh, he does use it, however. He does adopt it a month later in February of 1918, 14 points, January 1918. Uh, and he does take it. And where does he take it? I mean, self-determination is not a term that comes from Wilson's own, own background or own understanding. He was a historian, a political scientist. He studied quite deeply um, uh, the constitutional tradition of, of England and, and America. This, this term does not come from there. In fact, uh, the term was introduced into the international discourse uh, of this time by the Bolsheviks, uh, Lenin, uh, declarations of Lenin and Trotsky. And Wilson's adoption of this term is essentially a tactical move to co-opt Bolshevik rhetoric, uh, first, first uh, the, for the purpose of keeping the Bolsheviks themselves in the war. I mean, his main concerns in the beginning after the Bolshevik Revolution is that the, the, the Russians will leave the war, so he wants to give them a sense that he's, you know, with them. Um, but then just, for, just to keep those who support the Bolshevik Revolution, especially the European left, uh, on board with the war effort. Uh, so it's a very tactical move for him to adopt the specific term self-determination, and he, as soon as he adopts it, it basically is colored by his own uh, p political understanding of uh, political philosophy and development it basically becomes what in the Anglo-American tradition uh, is self-government. You know, uh, it is a sort of notion of, of, of representative uh, government, of accountability, very different from what Lenin and Trotsky meant when they were talking about self-determination, which is, which for them was the right of ethnic groups to throw off imperial rule. And of course, they adopted the term from, for their own pragmatic reasons. Uh, they wanted to break down the Russian Empire. They wanted to break down the Central European empires to facilitate revolution. So there's interesting, you know, double meaning here to the term, which is not well recognized at the time, and I think still confuses a lot of people today when they talk about self-determination. Uh, Wilson, when he was talking about self-determination, was not thinking in terms of ethnic groups uh, asserting their uniqueness and the purity of their polities. He was thinking in, in, in terms of much more, much, much more belong to the Anglo-American tradition of, of self-government. Um, now, of course, Wilson did not intend, probably did not even imagine, although he talked about colonial peoples, he didn't talk to them, right? Um, uh, uh, and he probably didn't even imagine that they were listening to these things that, that he were saying. Uh, 
but still his rhetoric, as I was saying before, presented uh, uh, colonial nationalists with a discourse of international legitimacy uh, that was hospitable to the demands for self-government that they were already entertaining. I mean, it's not that this was new for them, um, but this was a way to pursue these goals uh, in the international arena, which hadn't, uh, an opening which hadn't uh, been there before. H.G. Uh, Wells famously wrote about Wilson's coming to Europe in, in uh, December of 1918. He wrote the following, and I quote, for a brief interval, Wilson stood alone for mankind. And in that brief interval, there was a very extraordinary and significant wave of response to him throughout the earth. He ceased to be a common statesman. He became a messiah. This was H.G. Wells' take. Uh, uh, he was obviously thinking of the European response, uh, but this notion of, of almost a religious coming was not, in fact, limited to Europe. There's a, a, an Indian intellectual who uh, writes at, the, at this time, so slightly after, around the time the Wells is writing, um, and he, de he describes uh, Wilson's rapturous reception in Europe, and we all know about these stories of uh, uh, you know, uh, throngs of hundreds of thousands in the streets of Paris and London and, and women in Italy uh, lighting uh, candles in front of pictures of Wilson as if he was a Catholic saint and so forth. Uh, son of a Presbyterian minister, it's somewhat ironic. Uh, but uh, so Indian intellectual was writing uh, was writing about that, and, and he said that. And then he said the following. He said, and I quote: uh, "Imagination fails to picture the wild delirium of joy with which he, being Wilson, would have been welcomed in Asiatic capitals. It would have been as though one of the great teachers of humanity, Christ or Buddha, had come back to his home." So he's so appropriating Wilson as an, Asian, as an Asian sage, right? In this context, Christ is an, is an Asian sage as well, which is obviously an accurate description. So Christ or Buddha, I wonder what Wilson would have thought of, of, that, of that image. Uh, uh, certainly Christ would have been appealing. Buddha, I'm not so sure. Um, now, how is this understanding, this depiction, this, this uh, image uh, of Wilson propagated? Why is it so widespread? Why is it... Uh, I don't want to say global, but, but widespread internationally. Uh, well, part of it certainly is the unprecedented wartime propaganda effort that uh, the American government very uh, consciously put into the war. It was headed by the journalist uh, George Creel, uh, head of the Committee of Public Information. Uh, and for Creel and the Committee of Public Information, the apotheosis of Wilson and the widest possible dissemination of his address glo addresses Globally, was a main purpose of at least the international part of the operations. So, uh, uh, and, and and this is really the first war, the first major war where psychological warfare or uh, public relations becomes so crucial. And the Americans have their own way of doing that, um, and it's quite effective. Uh, partly because of our already preconceived image in many parts of the colonial of the non-Western world uh, of America being. Uh, not exactly pure, but, but certainly as compared to European powers, uh, a far more favorable image of the United States. Uh, and Wilson himself gets a lot of credit for having been an intellectual and a professor uh, in, in societies like China, where this is, this is seen as, I mean, this, this ideal of someone who is an intellectual uh, and at the same time a, a political leader is, is you know, sort of close to the Chinese ideal of, of the, the Confucian sage, and certainly Chinese at the time make that parallel and, and comment on that. Um, 
So uh, spread of newspapers, uh, uh, spread of, uh, uh, well, I was going to say that, that uh, American propaganda effort is important, but it doesn't explain nearly everything that we need to explain, because even in places where it almost did not take place, at least not directly, such as India, as part of the British Empire, uh, we see the same kind of spread. So it's, be, so it's not just the propaganda effort, it's the, it's the uh, news agencies, it's the spread of uh, print uh, journalism in all of these places in the preceding decades. Um, it's the rise of a reading public, still a minority, but still an, an important and, and broadening minority in all of these places. Uh, all of this is, is important. Um, so the end result of this is as the war draws to an end, many nationalists expect not only like or want to use Wilson's or adopt Wilson's ideas, but also expect, and this is important, they also expect him personally as a political figure, as a powerful figure in the world, world arena, to support them. So it isn't just a question, uh, I, I, I don't want to create the impression that this, is, this, this project is a story of the dissemination of ideas. This isn't about ideas. This is about politics. This is about uh, how do you take ideas or uh, visions or goals that you have, say self-government, self-determination, how do you make them politically feasible? How do you mobilize behind them? How do you get power, right? literally speaking, behind them? And as far as they're concerned, Wilson was a, a, a concrete representation of this power that the, not just to talk about these ideals, but also to implement them in a concrete way. It, it, indeed, to, to bend the arm of the colonial powers um, in one sense. One, there's an influential Chinese journalist who wrote, as Wilson was arriving in Europe, wrote, and, and I, uh, I, I quote, that thinking Chinese are looking to President Wilson to speak for China at the conference. He informed his readers that the president is, and I quote again, is kind-hearted in dealing with the weak and oppressed nation just in his relationship with a strong power and extremely severe in his treatment of predatory countries, in this case, Japan. Um, I have not met him, but his picture is thrown upon the uh, screen or shown in the magazines. And here again, I like this sort of visual representation. They were seeing his pictures on the screen. They were seeing his pictures in magazine. Uh, serene, resolute, fearless, and yet gentle, reasonable, and friendly. All this from a picture. Shows that he is not a man who temporizes. On the contrary, he is spiritual, fair-minded, and firm. Now, in Egypt, there were similar hopes. The uh, vice president of the president of legislative assembly in Egypt, a man by the name of Zarlul, if anybody knows Egyptian history, you know that he's considered the father of, of the nation. Um, he telegrammed the president, uh, uh, Wilson, directly to assure him, and I quote, that no people more than the Egyptian people has felt strongly the joyous emotion of the birth of a new era, which, thanks to your virile action, is soon going to impose itself upon the universe. I think a virile action is, is important here. It's not like just a question of your, your very attractive ideas. Uh, it's a question of expectations for virile, uh, virile action. Uh, and it, there's, this is not the only missive from Egyptians. You, you will find literally, I, well, I found literally uh, hundreds of, uh, just, just in the Egyptian case, hundreds of, um, uh, of telegrams and other kinds of letters from parliamentarians, from professional guilds, from student unions, from women's groups, from all sorts of civil society groups, not you know, just governmental uh, or, or official people, uh, calling on Wilson in, in those terms to help uh, Egypt gain its sovereignty, uh, and they were all filed away. They were, not, they were all filed away in the American uh, diplomatic archives, uh, although not read very carefully, uh, I, I would venture. Uh, Indian nationalist leader Lala Lachpat Rai wrote to Wilson uh, that his 14 points, and I quote, were bound to thrill the millions of the world, world's subject races. 
Uh, he said that Wilson had introduced a new charter of the world's freedom. Uh, and an, uh, an Indian uh, editorialist wrote the following. We should put forward our demands. It will be a sin if India does not lay her ailments before Dr. Wilson. And it's nice. I mean, Dr. Wilson was referring to his PhD, I believe, but still it's, it's a nice sort of confluence. Uh, element. India lays its ailments before Dr. Wilson. And again, we should put forward our demands. So this is an opportunity for action. This isn't just about ideas that are, that are attractive. So in December of 1918, only a few weeks after the armistice, the Indian National Congress, is still a, a significant uh, force in India today, departed from its traditionally moderate stance vis-a-vis -vis the Raj uh, and demanded that elected Indian representative, elected Indian representative be admitted to the peace conference. So India is an international, is an independent international uh, body. Uh, uh, dozens of local home rule leagues, as they were called, throughout India authored similar petitions to the Egyptian ones uh, asking to be granted self-determination. The, the conference granted them self-determination based on uh, Wilson's principle. Uh, uh, B.G. Tilak, who was a, a journalist and leader of uh, Indian nationalism, uh, and indeed the, at this time, before the rise of Gandhi, which happens a few months later, is, is, is the leading figure of uh, the Indian national movement, uh, uh, is in London, uh, working to sway world opinion, uh, really launching an international public relations campaign to sway world opinion in favor of Indian self-government. He also, he also, Tilak, also wrote Wilson in, in, in person, uh, telling him that world peace and justice depended on him and, and as the author of the principle of self-determination and asking for his support. Now, we know that this particular missive was actually read because, or if not by Wilson, at least by his secretary, because there was a reply in the files from Wilson's private secretary saying the following, uh, the, the, well, the president thanks you for, for your message. And the question of self-determination for India will be taken up in due time by the proper authorities. Now, now you wouldn't imagine this is a very uh, uh, encouraging reply, but actually, uh, Tilak tried to make the best of it. Uh, what Wilson had meant, essentially, uh, the proper authorities, presumably, was the League of Nations. I mean, Wilson said numerous times in response to other such replies, for example, by the Irish at this time, uh, this isn't just a, a colonial thing, obviously. Um, uh, he, he said, well, we can't deal with all that stuff in the peace conference. That's why I'm setting up the League of Nations. The League of Nations will take care of all that. Um, and and that uh, League of Nations didn't quite turn out the way that Wilson had hoped, obviously, uh, in, in more ways than one. But, but that, that was the way he, he allowed himself to put all these issues aside. Um, and Tillock understands that. And Tillock talks about appealing to the League of Nations in 1990, 1920, uh, before his death, talks about appealing to the League of Nations as the next step. If the Peace Conference doesn't do it, we'll appeal to the League of Nations for self-determination. In any case, at the Peace Conference, uh, they're not receiving much assistance. And by the spring of 1919, uh, time is running out. Uh, in, for the, chi the Chinese story is a bit different. For those of you who, who know a bit about the story of, of the peace conference, uh, China was, unlike uh, these other parties, was uh, uh, a recognized uh, state and had official representatives. It was on the, part, uh, on the side of the Allies, had official representatives in Paris. Um, and their main issue, uh, as some of you may recall, uh, was the restoration of, of uh, Shandong uh, province or the, uh, the territories in Shandong province that had been German before the war were seized by the Japanese. And now there was this big argument between the Japanese who were saying, right of conquest, we deserve to keep these territories, and the Chinese who were saying, well, self-determination, you know, new era, uh, all the rest of it. Uh, 
imperialism of that type is no longer acceptable. This is clearly Chinese territory should go back to China. And, and the, the, the resolution of the Shandong question became for them the litmus test of the admission of China into the, the full admission of China into international uh, society. Uh, now, the leaders uh, of the Chinese delegation uh, to the peace conference were both young, Western educated. The, the most uh, prominent one was Wellington Ku, uh, who was a Columbia PhD. Uh, another one was a Yale graduate. Uh, this is another thing that you get, just like seeing you know, Reuters in all of these papers. Uh, when you see the, the representatives from all, all, all of these different places, uh, many of them sh share similar educations. Uh, all of them uh, read at least one European language, either English or French. Uh, and, and this is not a, a case of people who come in and they, you know, they hear self-determination, it's a Western idea, they don't know what it means, they interpret it in different ways. Uh, they're, they, they're very well clued in to, to this discourse and to what's going on, and, 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 and they read the languages, and, and, and they're, I don't want to use the term Westernized exactly, but uh, I suppose that's not an inaccurate term, and I think, again, this is an, in some sense unprecedented and also... Uh, doesn't really happen again uh, afterwards. Subsequently, uh, uh, I mean, Mao Zedong was, certainly knew far less about the West than Wellington uh, Wellington Koo. Um, we can we can also talk a bit about that. Uh, so, uh, the for example, if we, if we go back to, to Egypt just for a m moment, uh, the 1919 revolution comes about because Egyptians, as soon as the war ends. Uh, an Egyptian delegation led by this man, Zarlul, uh, goes to the British High Commissioner and tells him, we demand to go to Europe to make our case in person. Uh, he says, no. Or he says, wait. That's actually what, what he says. <laughs> uh, this famous evangelical quip that, that when, you ask, when you pray and ask God for something, he says either yes, no, or wait. Uh, have you ever heard that? I, I thought it was interesting because the wait part of it is, is kind of indeterminate. So this was what the Egyptians were, were told. It, 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 wait. Um, they weren't willing to wait, however, because they, they, as far as they were concerned, once the conference mm -hmm. is over and everyone is gone from Paris, especially Wilson, the whole story, uh, the window of opportunity is closed. So um, no waiting. They demanded to go. They mobilized uh, public demonstrations against British rule, uh, asked, demanding self-determination and so forth. Uh, uh, the British clamped down violently. At, at one point, they just decided to... Uh, to round up uh, Zarlul and some of his uh, some of his supporters and uh, use this usual imperial tactic of, of, of um, exile, sending him to exile in Malta. Um, and what, when, as soon as it did that, the, the everything erupted and, the, and there, there was a series of, of uh, or a period of violent clashes, which in Egyptian historiography, historiography is called the 1919 revolution. <coughs> Now, I won't, I'm, I'm skipping the events in, in Korea, although they're an important part in the book just for brevity. For those of you who don't know about the March 1st movement, you can read the book or we can talk about it uh, later. But similar things happen in, in, in Korea, a gathering to demand self-determination, um, uh, a manifesto that, that talks about Wilson, talks about a new era. Um, uh, and obviously, March 1st is the day that this is launched, uh, Japanese clampdown, uh, uh, violence, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, the March 1st, 1st movement is, is born. Um, when Egyptians realized that uh, Wilson was not supporting their cause, in fact, in April 1918, he recognizes officially the British protectorate in Egypt, uh, and there's a backstory here too, but he, that happens. Uh, 
one of the leading uh, intellectuals in Egypt at the time says that this decision came like a bolt of lightning. Here was the man of the 14 points. Among them, the right to national to self-determination. Again, the 14 points isn't saying anything about self-determination, but, but here already it's appearing. Among them, the, the right to self-determination, uh, 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 denying the Egyptian people its right to self-determination. And then he asks, is this not the ugliest of treacheries? Is it not the most profound repudiation of principles? Uh, a similar dynamic occurs in, in, in India where uh, uh, hope uh, turns to disillusion uh, in, in the Indian case when the British clamp down uh, with the, uh, the so-called Rowlett Acts, which India is called the Black Acts, essentially anti set of anti-sedition acts extending wartime powers into peacetime. Uh, what this says to, British, to Indian nationalists is that essentially the British are not intending to move you to our self-government. They're intending to clamp down colonial rule. This is when Gandhi launches Satyagraha, the Satyagraha movement, passive resistance, becomes the major figure. Um, now, as we all know, Gandhi had already done Satyagraha numerous times before and, and for a long time in South Africa. But the important difference is in South Africa, the point of passive resistance was to, get, to achieve for Indians their rights as British subjects. The point of Satyagraha now in 1919 is to achieve... Uh, Indians their rights to self-determination, to be an independent nation. That's very different um, from the South African episode. Now, of course, the most famous episode of, of this of the, this movement is the Amritsar massacre in, in April of 1918. Notice all of this is happening. March, March 1st movement, May 4th, uh, uh, 1918 revolution in April. Uh, Amritsar also in April. All of this is happening in a, in a two- or three-month period in the spring of 1919, um, just when it becomes clear that the peace conference is not going to uh, do anything substantial for demands in terms of demands for self-determination outside of, of, of Europe. And uh, so when the decision on Shandong com comes down that it basically is given to Japan, uh, uh, students in Beijing erupt in violent protest on May 4th. Um, one student recalled, uh, and I quote, at once we awoke to the fact that four nations were all great liars we could no longer depend upon the principle of any so-called great leader like Woodrow Wilson. We couldn't help feel that we must struggle. <clears throat> so the point is that although the Wilsonian moment, as I describe it, did not last long, it left a mark. In this time, and we see a similar dynamic here in, in all of these cases, colonial nationalists stake their claims to self-determination they enunciated new goals and new agendas. They formed new organizations. They saw new leaders emerge as others became uh, more radicalized uh, or those who were moderate became more marginalized. They mobilized greater su uh, popular support than ever before behind their demands. They launched vigorous international campaigns to advance their causes. As the moment waned, violent upheavals further entrenched these commitments to these new and, and uncompromising agendas. But with Wilson gone, how, how would they proceed? Well, there were, there were some answers. One young Chinese activist at the time in the summer of 1919 noted that China had, was hardly alone in its disappointment. Uh, Indians, Koreans, and others were also ignored in Paris, he said. And he wrote the following, and I quote, so much for national self-determination. I think it is really shameless. This activist called the Allied leaders in Paris a bunch of robbers bent on securities, territories, and indemnities. And curiously, though, he sort of let Wilson off the hook. This is what he had to say about Wilson. Wilson in Paris was like an ant on a hot skillet. 
he didn't know what to do. He was surrounded by thieves like Clemenceau, Lloyd George, Makino, the Japanese representative, and Orlando, the Italian premier. One day, I like this part especially, one day a Reuters telegram read, so this activist in, in uh, uh, remote part of, relatively remote part of inland China in, in uh, uh, Changsha is, is reading a Reuters telegram about the Paris Peace Conference. It said, President Wilson, the telegram said, has finally agreed with Clemenceau's view that Germany not be admitted to the League of Nations. And he writes, when I saw the words finally agreed, I felt sorry for him for a long time. Poor Wilson. And that's the title of the, argument, of the article, Poor Wilson. And those of you who recognize the style know that this young activist is Mao Zedong. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, these ruminations in, in the summer of 1918 were his, were his very first public uh, 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 um, writings about, about politics. So this was a, 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 a crucial uh, moment that essentially launched his career as a, as a, as a political figure. Not yet, not yet a, a communist, not yet a Marxist, but someone who is thinking about these things in, in international terms. Now, with Wilson and his ideals now defeated, Mao spied another force rising to rally the people of Asia. The Russian Bolsheviks, he wrote, had made, this, remember, this is before he, he had he'd known anything about, about Bolshevism, uh, had made headway into Asia, and their ideas could not now be dismissed out of hand. Each of us, he said, should examine very carefully what kind of thing this extremist party, as it was known, uh, really is. Now, at around the same time, a young British-educated Indian barrister made similar observations. With Wilson and his 14 points gone, Russian Bolshevism now appears as, appeared as the chief potential ally of colonial nationalists in the international arena. Perhaps, he mused, some form of communism uh, will be found to suit the gen genius of the Indian people better than majority rule. And, uh, of course, this barrister was Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, uh, the young Jawaharlal Nehru, the, the, the young Mao Zedong. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's important here to, to note that it's, isn't, it's about ideology, yes, but it's also about pragmatism. It's about where do you get your support? You know, it's, uh, you know, it's not just which ideas are more attractive. It's, it's which ideas can be, which programs can be implemented, which programs will lead you to your goal of self-determination, of self-realization in the international arena. But if Wilson was gone, he was not entirely forgotten. Shortly after his death in early 1924, the Egyptian intellectual, Muhammad Hussein Haikal, uh, eulogized him in world historical terms. Incidentally, those of you who know something about Egyptian history in the 50s and later, this is not the same Haikal, Muhammad Hussein Haikal, Muhammad Hasnein Haikal, uh, who was Nasser's advisor. This is another one, but also a well-known intellectual in Egyptian history, uh, a liberal who then turned uh, more fundamentalist. Um, this is how he eulogized Wilson in 1924, and I quote, we all know Dr. Wilson. We all remember the time when we gazed at the 14 points in awe. We all remember the great hopes built upon these principles, hopes which still grip the world. The violent conflict between East and West, between imperialism and self-determination, between slavery and freedom, between darkness and light, this conflict, which began on the day that the Great War ended and will continue until light triumphs and right prevails, began on the day that the Great War ended. Is it not the consequence, this conflict, of these great principles that some today see as illusions? They are not illusions. They are a force which has built up over the ages, created by, the general, by general suffering and hopes, by individual dreams and yearnings, by the ideas of philosophers and the words of poets, by all the power, feeling, and desire of the human soul. Then fate chose President Wilson as their translator and spokesman. Woodrow Wilson is the voice 
of humanity's deepest yearnings. I think that Wilson would have, had he read these words, he would have been, on one hand, heartened. On the other hand, dismayed that this is coming from Cairo, Egypt, a place he never would have considered as an, as an, uh, an arena or, or an audience for these sorts of ideas that he was uh, propagating. Now, <clears throat> recognizing the importance of the Rossonian moment to the rise of anti-colonial nationalism doesn't discount uh, various other explanations, domestic, imperial, uh, for the rise of these movements, deprivations of war, blow to great power prestige, and all the rest of it. Uh, it does, however, as I tried to suggest, bring out a, a pattern uh, that has intriguing similarities across uh, cases and focuses our attention on the role of international norms and their transformations on domestic developments within uh, national communities. Of course, as I was trying to stress, my argument is not that Wilson's rhetoric created colonial desires for independence. That's obviously not the case. Um, it did, however, offer them a novel discourse of legitimacy in the international arena. They could, they could, for the first time, take these claims to the international arena and uh, submit them there and with all the attendant mobilizing, organizing, institutionalizing uh, uh, that, that's involved in that. Wilson's rhetoric essentially conjured international society in which the claim to nationhood was a ticket to membership, uh, if you will, the currency of sovereign personhood. <clears throat> Now, again, I want to emphasize uh, to conclude uh, that framing the Wilsonian moment uh, in the colonial world as an international event is not simply an analytical device or, an, or, or, or um, an expression of a particular historical approach. I don't want this project to be confused with comparative history. That is, with to say, you know, here are similar events, let's compare them. It's not the case. Um, it, in fact, it, it represents, in my view, historical reality because actors at the time saw themselves as acting on an international arena. And when we talk about their actions only in national contexts, we miss a lot of what they were intending to do and, and what they were aiming their actions and their words at. Uh, now, there are four ways, I think, in, in, four ways, um, in which we can, uh, at least, in which they, they were at the, mo at the time, at the moment, uh, uh, operating internationally. First of all, their physical location. Now, the individuals and groups that participated in, in, in the events of night, we, we talk about Korean nationalists, Egyptian nationalists, but, uh, and, and so forth. But in fact, these nationalists are dispersed all over the globe. Uh, Koreans from Shanghai to Philadelphia were integral to the March 1st movement. Chinese in Paris, Peru, and Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, took part in the May 4th protest. Egyptians in Manchester, uh, England, and Geneva joined the 1919 revolution. And Indians in London and New York City were crucial to the campaign for Indian self-determination. Moreover, the very national character of the territories that they each claim to represent, the Korean Peninsula, the Indian subcontinent, British protectorate in Egypt, Chinese subcontinent at the time ruled by a patchwork of warlords with at least two governments uh, vying for legitimacy, uh, the fact that these were in fact nations, national territories, was at the time an important point of contestation. So if, if we assume it uh, in, our frame, in our framing, we, uh, uh, we will beg the question, right? Um, it was, it was essentially their major argument that the, these, uh, these territories were in fact nations and these peoples were in fact nations. Uh, and it's, it's, it's always been ironic to me that, um, that national leaders seem to uh, uh, come disproportionately from uh, outside what ends up being the ter territory of the actual nation. And certainly operating, I mean, Sun Yat-sen uh, almost never stepped 
in, in, as an adult in China until he became a, a president, uh, Sing Manri in Korea and so forth. Uh, number two, in, in terms of international uh, framework, is uh, perception. As even those nationalists who were based in the national territory as they saw it, saw themselves as embedded and, and their actions as embedded in the broader global context. Uh, Egyptians, for example, noted the arrival in Paris of Arab representatives, you know, uh, the Emir Faisal, the famous Emir Faisal and others, uh, who were promised self-determination and concluded that Egypt deserved no less. Uh, Indians published maps that located India, and we'll, we'll see it soon, uh, within a world of dependent nations yearning for liberation. Uh, Chinese placed their desire to recover the German territories in the context of changing international norms. Um, Koreans stressed the similarity of their predicament to that of Belgium uh, under uh, German occupation and asked for similar redress. And they all, of course, carefully followed the gathering in Paris at the time of representatives of other small nations of Europe, Poles, Czechoslovaks, uh, uh, Yugoslavs, uh, that were emerging from the fall of empires. Um, yeah, and they all saw themselves as part of this global wave and therefore viewed their claims as not just just, but also timely. Third, in terms of actions, their, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, movement, the movements that they launched were aimed to, in large part, toward international audience. Uh, they organized broad information campaign and explicitly used the term world opinion as to, as to describe what the campaigns were, uh, you know, telegrams, letters, petitions, uh, pamphlets, and so forth, what, what, what their campaigns were aimed uh, toward. Uh, they initiated and took part in missions, of course, that traveled or sought to travel abroad to Paris, to Washington, to London, uh, you know, centers of power. Um, uh, indeed, the preparation of and execution of such missions were, in many of these cases, core aspects of what created, what precipitated the events of the spring of 1919, uh, like the Anglo-Egyptian fight over Zalou's desire to, to go to Paris. Um, Sing Man Rhee, uh, who became the president of South Korea, was at the United States at the time, trying to go to, to unsuccessfully to go to go to Paris, and much of his activity was was surrounded around that. And when he couldn't do that, he launched a publicity campaign in the American media to convince Americans that that Koreans uh, deserved self determination, that Japanese were vile imperialists. Um, and finally, in terms of the the vision of the goals that they had, they were also international. This, the goal was not just to have self-determination for Korea or for Egypt, uh, but rather the, the goal was to participate and to help in the transformation of the international system or international society uh, more broadly to bring into existence a vision of international relations which they associated with Wilson uh, in which hitherto dependent nations would obtain recognition of their equality and sovereignty and this, and, and this uh, recognition would uh, be exemplified in their admission to the League of Nations. That would be the sort of official form that it, it, it would take. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and, and within this new order, they, they saw liberal reforms domestically, or at least they argued liberal reforms domestically toward democracy, toward liberalism in their particular nations uh, would dovetail and interact with liberalization, the similar liberalization of international society. And they were making the explicit argument that these are interrelated that recognition in this new liberal international society will be followed and, and interact with the liberalization and even democratization of our domestic polities. And, and, and the opposite is also true. Lack of recognition would have the opposite effect. Uh, let me just conclude. Uh, 
uh, with, a, with a, a bit of historical irony uh, that Woodrow Wilson's rhetoric uh, ended up inspiring aspirations and actions that he neither anticipated nor in large measure approved of. Uh, on May 9th, 1919, as all these anti-colonial upheavals I just described were raging on, uh, Wilson uh, expressed gave grave concern to a gathering in Paris. He was disturbed, he told them, by the unqualified hope that men have entertained everywhere of immediate emancipation from the things that have hampered them and oppressed them. You cannot, he said, in human experience rush into the light. You have to go through the twilight into the broadening daylight into the broadening day before the noon comes and the full sun is upon the landscape. It's a nice image. Um, unfortunately, such a gradualist view was not typically shared by colonized people seeking self-determination. As far as they were concerned, the sun had risen long ago. Even if with the benefit of retrospect, we know that the road to the, from the imperial to the post-colonial world was indeed long and complex. And I argue that understanding the role of the Wilsonian moment in the rise of anti-colonial nationalism is a step toward unraveling, beginning to unravel that complexity. Uh, and it affords us insight into the, both the emergence of non-Western people as independent actors in international society and also to the very closely related, if occasionally inadverted, uh, if occasionally inadvertent role of the United States uh, in, co in the construction of this post-colonial world. Thank you. Do we have time to show some slides, or should we skip the slides? It's about maybe five minutes. All right. Slides, slides. Slides, good. It's kind of fun. Uh, first of all, this is the uh, young, uh, not yet, uh, can we get this, these ones? Yeah, thank you. The young, not yet Ho Chi Minh, and this is a copy of his petition, and you see it's signed down here, and when I Kwok, which is when, uh, the, uh, when the Patriot, which is the name he went by at the time, and uh, it's uh, in, in French, and if, we won't read it now, but it, it, you see if you read it, it's a model of reason, reasonableness and, and liberalism, uh, and it has nothing to do with, uh, it's about, you know, uh, it, it's a very gradualist and moderate um, prescription for, uh, for lightening the French rule in, in, uh, in Indochina. This is uh, uh, Wilson speaking July 4th, 1918, and... Uh, uh, making some of these soaring statements that would later, re later reverberate across the world. And I, I think it's, uh, I always like this, this picture because it's, you know, it's such a uh, uh, bucolic and, and um, how, how should we put it, uh, 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 sort of almost rural America. This is a uh, Mount Vernon, rural American landscape. Uh, and it's a very informal, looks like a very informal occasion. Uh, and yet uh, the words reverberate. Uh, and the man right behind, lurking right behind, Wilson's, this man here, right behind his shoulder is George Creel, the man who was more than any other man certainly responsible for the propagation uh, of both Wilson himself and his, uh, and his texts as the heralds of a new era. Now, a woman on the, on the, on the right is uh, Wilson's second wife, Edith. And, of course, on the left is uh, Robert Lansing, Secretary of State. This is a famous uh, photo of uh, V. Wilson, the uh, reception, Wilson's reception in, uh, in Paris, the crowds and so forth. This is a, uh, an, an advertisement from an Indian newspaper uh, in the spring of 1918, or even earlier, I think, actually uh, around the winter of 1918, 1919, I believe, 
that advertises a new volume that was published by Ganesh and company publishers in Madras, uh, a noted publisher of nationalist literature. And you can see the other books, India for Indians, India's Claim for Old, old Rule, the Indian Nation Builders, Heroes of the Hour, including Gandhi and all the rest of it. And, but the first book in their list, if you will, is The Modern Apostle of Freedom, uh, Woodrow Wilson and a collection of his speeches and so forth. So this is being sold in India, this, this collection by a nationalist publisher, as a, a crucial text. Every Indian nationalist, one of the reviews said, every Indian patriot must read this text and take it to argue with people who say that India doesn't deserve self-government. Uh, th uh, this is a Chinese uh, celebration uh, uh, to mark the armistice in November 1918, and you can see here, the sign says the world must be made safe for democracy. And there's a sign here, that, uh, a sign that supports world peace, uh, or world harmony, Xi uh, Jidato. And the last, and, and the one that supports the League of Nations. Uh, so basically support for the real, I mean, the world has to be made safe for democracy. Of course, a, a direct quote from, from Wilson. This is a, a map that was a part of a... Um, uh, of a uh, pamphlet that was published by uh, uh, Indian nationalist organization India, in the United States, actually. Uh, and you can see here, here are the oppressed nations of the world. What will the peace conference do for them? So it's a global lens through which they're seeing this. And there's an interesting uh, uh, so the description of, of, of each of these interesting legend here. You know, there's dependencies. There, and then there's, this is, look at this category, nominally, inde nominally independent, really dependent. Uh, and... <laughs> And China is in that category. Notice, China is in the category of no nominally independent, but really dependent. And then we have nominally republics. This is all Southern Africa. Uh, I don't know, you, you probably can see this. White, white free natives dependent, all of Southern Africa. Um, protectorates, old Turkey, fate undecided, and independent. Uh, and so you can, you can see that, that they have this, uh, this uh, global and, and quite uh, unvarnished view of, of the situation. Uh, this is a, a cartoon which I really uh, like. It was also published in, a, in another pamphlet that Tilak uh, had put out. The pamphlet was called Self-Determination for India and made the arguments quote, you know, using all sorts of quotes from Wilson um, uh, that India deserves self-determination. But look at this. this is, there's, there's a ship, you know, SS Self-Determination, new route from autocracy to freedom now sailing. right? Uh, and you see all these exotic characters boarding the ship. You see Arabs, you see uh, Turks, you see Jews, you see Armenians. Uh, several that I don't recognize, and only one character, which perhaps not uh, n not uh, entirely arbitrarily happens to be the only woman in the picture, uh, representing India, is being blocked from boarding the ship. And who who's on board? Captain Wilson on board the ship says, "Hello, what about India? Well, why don't you let India board the ship?" And the passport officer, who is Lloyd George, of course, the Indian, uh, the British Premier, says, "No passport, Captain." So I think it's, it's a great illustration of what they, what they had in mind at the time. Uh, this is also a, a photo I really, really like. I don't, it's, it's in the book. I don't think it was ever published prior to this. I found it, I think, in, uh, I think in what is an un unpublished uh, database. Um, uh, this is an Egyptian uh, woman, upper-class woman, uh, giving a public speech in the spring of 1919. The, the caption that went the original photographer put with, um, uh, said that she was calling for three cheers for country, for liberty and for President Wilson. And you can see there's a large crowd. One of the things that happened in 1919, both in, not only in Egypt, but, but especially in, in Egypt, was that women came into the public sphere in a way that they never had before uh, uh, and participated very actively in, in, this, in this movement. And in some ways, in ways that we don't see today, if, if you look at 
it would be very hard for you if, you if you go to Afghanistan or Iraq today uh, to see women in this kind of a, a forum where all men are listening and, and you have uh, these women. And I like the way in which she's covered with the veil, but the veil is sort of slipping down. You can see her nose. I think it's, it, it's symbolic for, for something. I'm not sure what. Um, so this is, this is Cairo. Uh, this, is, this is a few uh, uh, pictures from from uh, the Korean movement. This is in Seoul. Uh, again, Korean women marching for independence. This is the one on the top right. It's in, in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, Koreans, uh, the Korean Independence League in Philadelphia had a large uh, conference and they marched for independence. This is also in Philadelphia. This is Syngman Rhee right here, the, the fairly young Syngman Rhee. And anybody recognize where he was sitting? This is George Washington chair in the Constitutional Convention. This is in, in Philadelphia, the Independence Hall. Um, and, and here he is. This, this was now you, it's all roped off. You can't sit in George Washington's chair, but presumably back then you could do it. And here he is taking the picture, uh, obviously trying to associate the Korean struggle with the American uh, uh, struggle. Is there one more? Oh, this is the young Mao Zedong in 1919, and that's all I have. Thank you. Like to just recognize some I can questions. do that, sure. Should I keep the microphone on, or how, how should we do that? Because we won't hear the questions, I don't think, in the recording. How do you want to do it? Okay, I can do that. Okay. Well, the question is about whether whether there were skeptics. Uh, after all, Wilson himself was a racist. Uh, some of his writing about American history uh, made that fairly clear. Uh, his attitude toward Reconstruction and so forth. Um, his attitude toward African Americans as president, lynching, and, and the rest of it. Um, uh, and so, and so, why weren't they? Or, or where, where were the, where were the skeptics, and what did they what did they say? Well, there's two parts to this answer. One part is that there were fewer skeptics than than, than you might expect. Um, one reason was that not all of this, not everything that I just described was well known in, in all of these different places. Um, now, some of it was well known. Certainly the conditions of African Americans was very well known. But you, you will find uh, Egyptians and Indians and others uh, differentiating themselves rather than putting themselves, saying, well, you know, uh, uh, there was there's one, one, there's one quote I remember from an Egyptian newspaper when in, as part of the Senate debate of the League Treaty, the Senate decided that Egypt was, in fact, an independent country and therefore they could hear their claim to be free of, of, uh, and, and of British uh, uh, rule. And when the Egyptian papers heard of that, they responded by saying, finally, the Americans understand that Egyptians are not red people and not Negroes, that they are a civilized people. All right? So the discourse of civilization is crucial. And... Indian, most Indians, most Egyptians at this time are not, do not see themselves as, uh, 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 as the situation is parallel to that of African Americans. They see the differences. They see you know, we have these ancient civilizations, certainly all these four groups that I just discussed. We have these ancient, ancient civilizations. We're clearly deserving on, on the civilizational scale of the right to self-determination. Uh, self and the other part of it was that even those who were skeptical said, and, and this was also said numerous times by numerous people, look, um, maybe he doesn't intend it, but once the genie is out of the bottle, once the principle is there, we can still use it. And the best example, is, which I didn't talk about, is William Monroe Trotter. 
William Monroe Charter was a, uh, a black leader in the United States uh, who had had a confrontation with Wilson in the White House about Wilson's treatment as, a, as president of African-American uh, concerns. And, and Wilson basically threw him out. So he knew, he knew very well where Wilson stood. And yet, uh, when the, uh, the war ended, he uh, went to Paris to make the argument, and, and this is the participate in, in this conference that, African, that, that, that not just African-Americans, but um, members of the African diaspora were holding, including uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, Blaise Dien, who was from Senegal, who was uh, uh, a deputy in the, in the, in the French parliament. Um, <clears throat> and they were claiming uh, some type of self-government for Africans uh, using Wilsonian terms. Because the terms were, once you have the terms there, you can use them, even if there were, it's the whole point of, of these this unintended, unintended results. And they understood this very well, that he may not mean it, or he may not have the power to implement it, or we may not have the priority to implement it, which of course he didn't. And yet, that doesn't mean we can't adopt it. It was certainly known. It was part of the reporting that came out from Reuters and other agencies from the Peace Conference. It was a big deal. Um, the thing is, again, that we have to we have to put ourselves in in the context of, of of the times. For example, the Chinese response to this whole argument. I mean, it took a long. It took several months be, between the time that the Japanese raised this. I'm sorry. The, the question was about uh, the uh, Japanese racial equality clause that they proposed at the Paris Peace Conference to be put into the League of Nations covenant recognizing racial equality. Um, and after a long debate, Wilson then essentially, not single-handedly, but essentially made the decision to discard it and not include it uh, in the League covenant. And the Japanese, of course, were very incensed. Um, there's two things to, to understand here. First, there's a great book about this, I think the definitive work by Naoko Shimazu, who uses all the relevant Japanese sources. Um, the Japanese were not intending to be champions of the non-white world in this, in this suggestion. They were, it's quite the opposite. They were intending to separate, to, to basically to have Japanese viewed as equal to whites and as different from all, all, from all these other peoples. Um, and you know, this has a long history in, in terms of Japanese self-perception. But the point is that other people knew this. I mean, the Chinese representatives in Paris were very lukewarm toward that proposal. They couldn't openly disavow it, saying we don't want racial equality. But they never really supported it, because one, Japanese, Japanese were their enemies in the, in the conference, were their, uh, uh, and two, they very, uh, understood very well why the Japanese wanted that in, that it wasn't a question of championing all uh, people of color. It was a question of very narrow Japanese interests. Um, by the time that the denial comes around, the disillusionment is already, long, is already well underway. It's already well understood that Wilson is not going to be. So th that in itself, is already, you know, it, it, it strengthens the impression that was already there, but it's not in itself dispositive, I would say. They were kind of embarrassed that yeah. it was taken to be that way. And, and so I was wondering, was there a similar conversation between what, what Japanese meant and what it could be used as actually by these other countries? Because, because yeah. it could be used in similar to what Wilson said, as sort of taking out of context yeah. and used to support the truth. Absolutely, but, but the, in, in distinction to the perception, of at least, of Wilson's power, 
the, um, uh, the, the thing was, was thrown out. So it, it wasn't, I mean, you could say, well, we, all, we're also, we also support racial equality, but if you didn't have the leverage, right, you didn't have the, the support of the, the great power leaders, uh, and this is, again, the point that I was trying to make. It's not necessarily so much about ideas being attractive. It's about what, which ideas can help you pull the levers you want, the levers of power that you want, right? All right. Do you think colonization itself, I mean, the movement to colonization itself will, you know, will just go as usual or whether it's becoming a catalyst? That's, that's an important question. It's a counterfactual history. Had Wilson not said all of these, not laid out these broad principles, had, for, for example, uh, someone else been president of the United States during the war, which is not that far-fetched because uh, Wilson was pretty fortunate to win the 1916 election uh, against Charles Evans Hughes. Uh, and had Charles Evans Hughes won that election and been the President of the United States uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, propagated a much more Lansing-like uh, policy of, you know, of, of you know, realism and great power politics and who cares about the non-white world, um, and had not said any of these things, what would have what would have happened had well I, I, I certainly don't want to argue that you know Egypt would still be a colony today uh, and uh, and China would still be nominally dependent uh, nominally independent but actually dependent um, but I think that within the confines of the time it's quite likely that the 1919 revolution in Egypt would not have happened at least not in the same way that it happened or the May Fourth movement would not have would not have uh, occurred, uh, certainly not on May 4th of 1919, and maybe in, in a very different way. Uh, and you can say the same thing about March 1st in, in Satyagraha. I mean, obviously, th these were parts of broad macro-historical shifts, um, but, but they were also concrete events. I mean, you, most of the historiography, this is kind of puzzling to me when I was reading into the historiography of May, the May 4th movement, you know, within Chinese history. Um, most of it sort of treats it as as this, you know, all these ideas about the literary reform and language reform and feminism and anarchism and all the rest of it, and, and usually ignore the fact that, that there was something that happened on May 4th. There was a certain type of mobilization that brought these ideas to the fore, that enabled them, uh, in the same way that the Vietnam War enabled the ideas of the 60s, enabled them to, to occupy space in the public discourse, which would have otherwise taken perhaps longer, perhaps uh, would have evolved in a different way. So... I'm not saying that anti-colonialism would not have happened. Certainly, anti-colonialism was already in place before that. But I am saying <coughs> that events would have been significantly different. I can't speculate how different because obviously that's, you know, that would be a counterfactual history, and we don't do that. Right? <laughs> <coughs> Yeah, yeah, precisely. Uh, this is a page I skipped. I skipped in the reading because I was going too long anyway. Um, but I think there is not 
in, in, a, in, in a complete and extreme sense, but there are certainly, Syngman Rhee, for example, is making, is making the explicit argument um, that recognizing Korean independence and throwing off Japanese rule, which is reactionary and all sorts of bad things, uh, will allow Japanese, uh, I'm sorry, Korean liberals uh, to implement liberal reforms in Korea. Now, he, of course, says that you know, it has to fit the, the culture of the people. He uses different terms, but you know, it, it has to be gradual and educational to people and so forth. But the argument still certainly is made. And, and the other point is that m most of these individuals that I, that I discussed, you know, Zarlul, uh, Singman Rhee, Wellington Koo, uh, also Tilak, although he's not remembered quite in that way, uh, and some of these others, were all, to one extent or another, liberals um, in, in, in the Western mold. Uh, whether, I mean, when Sigmund Rhee actually comes to power, he's not that much of a liberal. Um, but he comes to power several decades later after a whole new string of events. And I do think that the perception after 1919 that the road to national liberation lies in the ideas of the Bolsheviks rather than the ideas of Wilson does have an impact. It does color the, the nature of anti-colonial nationalism. Uh, it's not the only issue, but it does color the nation of anti-colonial nationalism after 1919. Okay, so, so the, the, the question is, uh, what was the American, the American domestic response to all of this uh, PR blitz, if you will? And, and second, about the methodology, how do you, how do you pick and choose? Well, actually, the questions are related uh, because I don't really know what the American response was. I mean, I, could, I know a bit of it, but it's not, it's not part of the research that I, that I did uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, I, 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 uh, so there's certainly, partly because there's quite a bit of historiography, not focused specifically on this issue, but it's quite a bit of historiography on the domestic side of, uh, of, uh, uh, of wartime propaganda um, and so forth. Obviously, the perspective was quite different. Although, it, what, I, where, what I did look is how the events in these, in these colonial uh, regions that were precipitated by Wilson, among other things, um, how they played, in, in, especially in the Senate debate, the so-called league fight following uh, the peace uh, treaty, uh, and, and they were used quite vigorously by uh, uh, congressmen and senators who opposed senators, especially who opposed Wilson, um, to make the point that the treaty is, you know, it, it, it's a bad treaty because look, it oppresses the Egyptians, it oppresses the Koreans, it allows the Japanese uh, uh, to, to do what they want. It, uh, many of these people were anti-British, were anti-Japanese in the first place, but but. On the other hand, you get the sense that we're making these arguments. These are, these are, for them, the point of these arguments is to bring down Wilson. The point of the argument is not to liberate Koreans uh, or to liberate Egyptians. So they're using it as, a, as an axe against Wilson uh, in the context of domestic debate, but, but they don't really care about... I mean, that's obviously not surprising. Why would they, right? I mean, uh, they still, when you hear Senate debates today, um, yeah, it's not about, you know, over there. It's about over here. Um, the second question is, is a methodological question. It's, it's really a very hard question for me to answer, something I'm still struggling with. Uh, I mean, to some, I, I would like to pretend that there was there's some overarching principle that I used to select these uh, places that I looked at. But really, it was a combination of what languages I could read and uh, 
where things happened. Because if I were a political scientist, a political scientist said this to me, well, you need to have also one case study where nothing happened. So that, so I'm sorry, many, I'm sure many of you are political scientists. So that, so, so that you can make the comparison. But my answer to that, and I don't, I'm not sure it's a great answer, but that's the only answer I have, is I'm a historian. I am in the business not of case studies. I'm in the business of telling, things, telling about things that happened. I can't talk about things that didn't happen. Um, so, so, I mean, these, these, were the ma these were some, at least, of the, of the major uh, events of the spring of 1919 that, that were really... So there certainly could have been regions of the world where nothing of consequence happens in 1919. I don't really think it destroys my argument. Like I say, it doesn't have to be completely global in order to, to be international. Because a lot of people have classes at 1.30, perhaps we should break it off here and uh, encourage people who have individual questions to stay around for uh, some more conversations. So thank you. Thank you.